I want to actually talk a little bit about some women today. And I had lots and lots of ideas for today's discussion point. But I just felt in the end, all I wanted to do was to tell you some very brief stories about Australian Christian women. Not many of them are still alive today, but they've had an impact. And what I really love about this is that in most cases, they're not particularly special people, except that they responded to the call of God <coughs> on their life. And it struck me as I looked at the lives of these women, that there are women who are mentioned in the Bible, whose lives were very, very similar. And it's quite possible that if Paul and the other writers of the epistles were in our society today, they might just refer to some of you who were serving family and community in the way that people like Phoebe and Lydia and a few others did. And I want to talk a little bit about them too because I think you'll see that there are parallels between these women who are honoured forever because their names are recorded in the Bible. And you guys, you women, who are serving family and community. And some of these names may be familiar to you. Others probably won't be. So first is Florence Young, who was born 100 years before me in 1856, and she died in 1940. She was actually a New Zealander. She was a Kiwi. She was born in Motueka. Some of you will know where Motueka is. Near Nelson. It's a beautiful place. They grow hops there, don't they? They used to grow tobacco there. They don't grow tobacco there anymore. But they grow hops. It's beautiful, beautiful country. Lovely green country. Beautiful, fertile soils. Well, she was born there. And she was never married. So she, she wasn't the standard mother with husband and, and family. But she responded to the call of God. In fact, at 18 years of age, she had what she called a crisis, and it was a good crisis, not a bad crisis, because we'd probably call it a revelation today. She had a revelation of what it meant to be forgiven by God. She was at a prayer meeting in Dunedin, in the South Island of New Zealand, and she perceived God's power in forgiveness, and she asked to be baptised, and so she was. A few years later, she uh, uh, found her way to Australia. Uh, she moved to Sydney in 1878, and uh, she moved there with her parents. When her parents died, she moved up to a sugar plantation uh, near Bundaberg, not that far from here. And um, she was moved by God to start prayer meetings for all the workers on the plantation. The plantation was called Ferryman. And um, of course, many of the workers on the uh, plantation were, were Kanakas. They were actually slaves who were brought across from some of the southern Pacific islands to work in the, in the cane fields. And she actually started a church, believe it or not, 
It was it was a non-denominational evangelical church, and it was called the Young People's Scriptural Union. The Young People's Scriptural Union, and it grew to four thousand members. Can you believe that? That's a mega church. In fact, back then it was more than a mega church because, in given today's population, it would be a church of maybe forty thousand people, as big as Hillsong is in Australia. Just it, it, think about it. She gets a revelation of the forgiveness of God at 18 years of age. She asked to be baptised. She ends up uh, living with two of her brothers who run a sugar plantation near Bundaberg. And she sees the need of the people for a saviour. Because the Kanakas weren't, they weren't Christian, of course. They were animists. And uh, so she, she starts a church. Now she must have been anointed all right. Because it grew to 4,000 people. And then she established what was called, at that time, the Queensland Kanaka Mission. And uh, it later spawned the South Sea Evangelical Mission, which still exists today. Now it is claimed uh, that her church saved at least 2,100... Sorry, that the Queensland Kanaka Mission... Uh, Saved at least 2,150 people, mainly Kanaka slaves. During her lifetime, she kind of retired. She retired in 1926. By then, the South Sea Evangelical Mission had uh, saved over 7,000 people, nearly seven and a half thousand people. And the South Sea Evangelical Mission still operates today. But I've got a friend, he's now about 86 years of age. For most of his life, he's been a missionary with the South Sea Evangelical Mission. He has some absolutely amazing stories to tell. But it all happened because of this woman, Florence Young. Born in New Zealand, moved to Australia, set up a church. She taught the people the truth from the Word of God. And most of the time, she taught in pigeons. And uh, when she said goodbye to uh, the slaves or the workers who ended up going back, most of them to the Solomon Islands, she used to say to them, no, forget them, Jesus, which is pigeon. I don't know much pigeon, but there you go. So that's Florence Young. Next I want to talk briefly about Elizabeth Macquarie. She was the wife of Governor Lachlan Macquarie. And... Um, there's an interesting book written about Lachlan Macquarie that's only fairly recently been published, probably about three years ago. He was a devout Christian man. And uh, he actually loved the convicts and especially the emancipists. They were the people who had served out their time and they were freed and they were able to make a living off, off the land. Most of, the, most of them became farmers. Now, it created a big stir in the colony because there were so many people there who didn't come from a Christian background, or they didn't really have a Christian faith, and they didn't even think of the convicts as being citizens. They didn't even think of the convicts as being really human. So how could they become human when they were emancipated? That is, when they were set free, like all the other um, settlers in the, in the colony. So there was a lot of dissension, and she was a voice for peace in the place. So she played a very, very important role. But she also co-founded the Colonial Auxiliary Bible Society of New South Wales, and the Benevolent Society. Now, 
the benevolent society was very important. There was no social welfare provided by the government back then. None at all. There was no such thing as uh, New Start allowance. There were no family allowances, no pensions. There were nothing. Government didn't do any of that. Basically, government only dealt with law and order, and that was it. They didn't even do schools. So she and two others established the Benevolent Society, which was an, an organisation that actually provided social welfare in the, in the colony. The other very, very interesting thing she did, uh, she and Elizabeth MacArthur, both of them were very interested in gardening and in farming, they actually introduced haymaking in the colony. Now you might think, hay, well that's nothing, that's just dry grass tied up with string. Well, it is in a sense, it's, it's dried to a, a moisture a level of about 12%, so well, that preserves it, so you can store it for a long period of time. But it also enables you to increase the stocking capacity of your land, because when the pasture's not growing, you can actually supplement with hay, and that simply means you can carry more animals, it makes agriculture more efficient. Now, I bet you didn't know that Elizabeth Macquarie and uh, MacArthur, uh, Elizabeth, I think it was, she was Elizabeth too, Elizabeth MacArthur, they were the ones who actually pioneered haymaking in the colony of New South Wales. That was a major contribution to the well-being of settlers in the colony. The other thing she did was uh, she brought out from England a collection of books, including books on architecture, that were really helpful to both her husband and to the colony's architect, Francis Greenway, who's very well known in New South Wales. Uh, they used those books as references in uh, designing buildings, particularly public buildings. In addition, she, she had brought with her a collection of Bibles in a few different languages, and she set up a lending library of Bibles, and most of those Bibles survive to today. And uh, they are at, I think it's St Mark's Anglican Cathedral in Sydney, they're still stored there. So, quite a remarkable Christian woman. She made a very significant impact. The next is a woman who is still alive. Uh, she celebrated her 95th birthday just a few years ago, Catherine Hamlin. Together with her husband who passed away a few years ago, she was trained as an obstetrician and gynaecologist at the uh, Crown Street Women's Hospital in Sydney. I used to walk past that hospital pretty regularly when I lived in, in Sydney. She left Australia in 1959 with her husband and they established the Fistula Hospital in Addis Ababa. Ababa. And uh, she's still there. They, they never came back to Australia. Um, she's more or less retired now. But she's had an amazing impact caring for women and children in Ethiopia since 1959. That is amazing, isn't it? Wonderful contribution of a Christian woman. The next is another, another doctor, a medical practitioner by the name of Evelyn Billings. And she died just a few years ago. She was married to another physician. He was a very well-known neurologist uh, in Australia. He was at St Vincent's Hospital and he was also Dean of the Undergraduate Colleges of um, Medicine at, I think it was the University of Sydney. Oh, sorry, Melbourne, I mean, uh, the University of Melbourne for many, many years. Uh, together, 
They, they developed the Billings ovulation method of natural birth control. Now, that might mean a lot to, to many of us, but as you would know, the Catholic Church is opposed to the use of um, chemical, if you like, chemical methods of birth control. So they've always been opposed to the use of the, the pill and to many other methods of family planning. Uh, Evelyn Billing and Billings and her husband John, they developed a natural birth control method which was actually adopted officially by the Catholic Church. That is actually a major thing, a really major thing. As I said, it probably doesn't mean a lot to many of us. But when the whole of the Catholic Church adopts <coughs> something like this, one, it helped so many women in the church to remain true to the teachings of the church, but at the same time have some capacity over the number of children who were born in a marriage relationship. Um, the method was used by the World Health Organization, which is a, an international agency, part of the United Nations framework, and it was the only natural birth control method ever approved by the Chinese government. And of course, you know they've had for many, many years the so-called one-child policy. Absolutely amazing. This woman worked uh, on this project from 1963, virtually up until she died. Her husband died a few years before she did. They used to spend about half of the time living in Australia, and the other half of the year they'd go overseas, teaching the method, teaching doctors, uh, teaching it in hospitals, and teaching it in poor communities. Here's another lady, you probably haven't heard of her, nor had I until I did a little bit of research. She's an indigenous woman. She was, um, she was born to an, an English dad and an indigenous mum. Uh, she married uh, another uh, indigenous man who also had Irish um, heritage in 1921. What she became very well, and we don't have a photo of her because as you will understand, uh, that the Aboriginal culture, they tend not to show photos of people who are dead. All right, so you won't find, I, I couldn't find a photo of her anywhere. But um, you'd also appreciate that certainly earlier in the 20th century, for an Aboriginal person to go to a major city for medical treatment or for some other reason, that was pretty traumatic because they had to, in a sense, make an instant transition to a totally different culture, totally different ways of thinking and processes, and the idea of a male doctor touching an Aboriginal female was very, very traumatic for them. And what she did, wherever she lived, she just had open house for Aboriginal folk who were visiting. She lived in Adelaide for a long time. Aboriginal folk who were visiting Adelaide. And uh, there's a, a, a minister wrote once that at any particular point in time, she'd have anything from 12 to 20 people staying in her house. He actually said, you know, every square foot of floor space was taken up by beds for these, for these visitors. And she did everything she could to make their experience in the city <coughs> as least traumatic, if that's a good expression, as least traumatic as it possibly could be. In addition, she visited Aborigines in hospital to bring them comfort and assurance and uh, she also visited children who were at the United Aborigines Mission, Mission's Colebrook home. She spent her life linking people in rural areas and their families. 
uh, in Adelaide. Quite an amazing woman. Wherever she lived, her house was an open house. Here's someone you will, I'm sure, have heard of, and this is Margaret Court. You know, if ever there was some a Christian person, forget about just woman, but a Christian person in Australia who is really a hero, this would have to be one. And in my book, she certainly is. Not only because she is arguably the greatest tennis player the world has ever seen, male or female, but she has resolutely stood against the watering down of moral standards in our nation. She's been pilloried for it all around the world because she is so famous. And of course, when she spoke out publicly against same-sex marriage during the same-sex marriage debate in Australia, Billie Jean King, who happened to be visiting at the time, said to, the, uh, to Tennis Australia, you should take her name from the Margaret Court stand at um, is it Keyong in, in Melbourne? Where, no, where, the, Melbourne, the Tennis Centre. Yeah, the Melbourne Tennis Centre. And uh, to their credit, Tennis Australia didn't do that, but quite a campaign was, um, was launched against Margaret Court. And all she was doing was plainly stating what God's standard in marriage is. That's all she was doing. And she has stuck resolutely to that. But look, she, no one has come anywhere near her for world records in tennis. She holds the world record for grand slams, both male and female. She won 24. She's won a total of 64 major titles. Um, there's a little bit of discrepancy depending on who you read, but there's a lot there anyway, and no one's ever come anywhere near it. She's the only person ever to win a multiple slam set singles, women's doubles and mixed doubles. Greatest tennis player who's ever lived. She became a Christian halfway through her career, by the way. So for a lot of the time that she was playing tennis, she was a Christian. And then, of course, a little later in life, she established a Pentecostal church in Perth, Victory Life Centre, and that there are now Victory Life Centre churches not only all over Australia, but in many other countries of the world. And she heads up Victory Life International. Um, you might remember Mabel, who was... When, when she was living with us, she used to come to church here. She goes to a Victory Life Church, which is called River River Church, I think, at Surface Paradise. Um, they're affiliated with, with Margaret Court's church. And I've, I've got some good friends whose ministries are also <coughs> affiliated with their church. What, what, a, what an absolute hero. If I had to draw up a list of living Australian heroes in, for me, she would definitely be one who's on absolutely wonderful, brave. She's 77, and she's still actively pastoring. She does a lot of travel, and she sticks up for Jesus. And I reckon that's a pretty good thing. Well, these are all Australian women. And you know what? They're pretty ordinary people, but they responded. They responded to God. And they've made a difference in the lives, not only of their families, but communities as well. And I just want you to be encouraged, all the women in our church be encouraged, that God values the contribution that you make to family and to the broader community.
And there are a few who are named in the New Testament. I just want to uh, talk about Lydia, uh, Phoebe, and uh, Priscilla today. And, and the why I want to do that is, actually when you have a look at what's recorded about them in the Bible, there's not a lot, they're pretty ordinary people. They're pretty ordinary people, but they simply responded to God. And their names are now recorded forever in God's book. And I want to encourage you, as I said earlier, that if Paul and the other epistle writers were here today, and they saw what, what you were doing, your name might just end up in their epistles. Because it matters to God that you contribute to family and to community. Lydia is referred to in Acts 16, verses 11 to 20, and I'll read it out for you. Uh, the, and this is, um, well, Luke wrote the book of Acts, but this was really all about Paul. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside, where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who we met there. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira, who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptised, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. So she offered hospitality. And uh, even at this time, Paul was probably not so well known as a Christian evangelist. He was obviously pretty well known as a persecutor of, of Christians. But this was fairly early on in his ministry. Now... The fact that she was a trader, they called a trader in purple, it was purple cloth. Nothing particularly special about the cloth as I understand it, but the dye was very, very expensive. In fact, the promised land, remember that? Way back that God had promised the Jews? The promised land? It was actually known in the then known world for its purple cloth. It was, it was very valuable, not so much because of the cloth, because of the dye. So she was a trader in what they call purple. She's the first recorded convert to Christianity in, in Europe. And uh, she responded, it says that she, she did worship God, she heard the message, the gospel message that Paul brought, she was baptised and she offered them hospitality. And her name is recorded in the Bible forever, forever because she offered hospitality to Paul and his entourage. The next one is Phoebe. And um, this is my wife. Jeanette is a Phoebe. Uh, and again, look, there's not a lot recorded about Phoebe in the Bible, just a few lines. Romans 16, 1-2 says this. And this is Paul writing. I commend you to Phoebe, our sister who is a servant of the church, or a minister of the church, in Chentria, 
and that you may re that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and assist her in whatever business she has need of you. For indeed she has been a helper or patron or benefactor of many, and of myself too. So Phoebe was um, obviously a wealthy woman, but she was also somebody who carried an anointing of God and she became a minister with a sacred mission. And it is believed that she carried Paul's letter to the Romans. And you might think, well, so what? She, she was servant-hearted, I suppose. But the point is this. Back in those days, the person who carried the letter was given the same authority as the person who wrote it. So in Paul's eyes, she was an equal. Now she carried that letter to the Romans. She had the same status that Paul had. So there's a lot of blokes who could probably uh, learn a few lessons from, uh, from Phoebe. But not only was she a minister, uh, the Greek word diakonos is used to describe her, she was also a leader or benefactor, and the two things went together in that society. <coughs> uh, the Greek word is prostatus. And uh, so she was a minister, or, or a bit like a pastor. She had the same status as Paul, at least when she was interacting with the Romans, and she was considered a leader within the church at the time. And as I said, I, I see Phoebe... In, in Jeanette. She's more generous than I am, by the way, so if, if you're down on your luck, talk to her first. <laughs> She's better than I am at that sort of thing. Finally, just a reference to Priscilla. Priscilla and Aquila. Aquila was the bloke, and Priscilla was the woman. She was probably actually uh, a Roman. A Roman, yes, she was probably actually a Roman. Uh, given her name, and the history of the name tends to indicate that she was very high-bred, so she was a very high-society person. And uh, she, she was married to Aquila, but interestingly, they were both tent-makers, or a lot of theologians say that's probably a bit of a mistranslation, that in fact they were leather workers, but it doesn't really matter all that much. And... Um, as I said, in all likelihood, she would have come from a prominent Roman family. She was con she converted to Christianity. Pretty dangerous thing to do. And uh, they, um, they were uh, thrown out of Rome. All the Christians were thrown out of Rome. Acts 18, 1-3. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. So Aquila was most likely a Jew, Priscilla most likely a Roman. And he came to them. Uh, so because he was one of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. Now it's very interesting, back in those days, hospitality might be offered to a visitor for a period of about three weeks. So socially that was about the limit. Paul actually stayed with them for one and a half years. So again, we see uh, Priscilla offered hospitality. And really, is she 
in a sense, much better than many of those Australian Christian women that I spoke about? Is Phoebe much different to someone like Margaret Court? Is Lydia much different to many women we would all know? I, I don't think they are. Or I don't think they were. I don't think they are. Well, whatever. So be encouraged. God values what you do. And these are just a few Christian women in Australia who have made a difference to the lives, in some cases, of a few, in other cases, of many. And in many cases, their legacy continues to this very day. They weren't all extraordinary people. Not all of them appear in the Guinness Book of Records. But I'm absolutely convinced that if the epistles were being written today, some of you would indeed, perhaps all of you would be candidates for being named in the epistles because of what you do for family, for community, because of the way in which you minister to others, because of the way in which you lead other people. So be encouraged and receive God's blessing. And as Ainsley said, the little gift is for every woman in our midst today. So make sure.